Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Just recently, on August 9th, we observed the International Day of the World's Indigenous People. Each year, this day brings into focus the Indigenous peoples of the world to celebrate their various cultures and to shine a spotlight on the oppression, violence, and disrespect which Indigenous peoples suffer or have suffered. On this day and on every day, there is a movement to address and solve the problems which trespass on the welfare and rights of Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, we also observe National Indigenous Peoples Day, too, to celebrate the history, heritage, and resilience of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. I think other countries might do the same, right? Having their own day? Yes, you're right. The reason August 9th was chosen as the International Day of the World's Indigenous People is that the United Nations Working Group on Indigenous Populations of the Sub-Commission on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights met for the first time on this day in 1982. Each year, a theme is designated. This year, the theme is Indigenous Youth as Agents of Change for Self-Determination. Wow. It's such an important day, and that is a very important theme for sure. Absolutely. I think people might be surprised to hear just how many Indigenous people are estimated to be living in the world today. It's not small, is it? It is not. According to the UN, there are approximately 476 million Indigenous people around the world, representing 5,000 communities in 90 countries and speaking 4,000 languages. Indigenous people represent approximately 6% of the world population. That's quite a substantial percentage. Mm -hmm. But how does the UN define Indigenous? I have learned that there's not a universal definition for what it means to be Indigenous. Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right. I think that most people probably believe that Indigenous peoples are just the first inhabitants of an area and their descendants, of course, as well. But it's a little bit more nuanced than that. I do believe, though, that most sources refer to the United Nations approach, which is to identify rather than define Indigenous peoples. Interesting. Yeah. Because Indigenous peoples are so diverse, the United Nations put forth a system of understanding the term Mm -hmm. Indigenous peoples, and it's based on the following. So you have to have that self-identification as Indigenous peoples at the individual level, but also accepted by the community as a whole. Okay. There is a historical continuity with pre-colonial and or pre-settler societies, and also a strong link to territories and surrounding resources. They have distinct social, economic, or political systems. I see. Right? And distinct language, culture, and beliefs. And they form non-dominant groups of society. So that's a key aspect. And they resolve to maintain and reproduce their ancestral environments and systems as distinctive peoples 
and communities. Well, this all makes sense. And by this understanding, apparently the largest population of Indigenous people are located in China. Oh, really? I wouldn't have guessed that. Mm-hmm, me either. But there are reportedly roughly 125 million Indigenous there, aside from the Han majority. It should be noted, though, that the People's Republic of China does not recognize the existence of Indigenous people, despite voting in favor of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Yeah. They are known rather to say that they are a unified country with 55 minority nationalities, which make up the 125 million I just referred to. Okay, so already we're seeing a different approach to identifying Indigenous peoples. Right. India is a country with the second largest population in the world. It is estimated that the population of Indigenous people in India is 104 million. And then next in line are the Philippines with the third largest Indigenous population at 15 million. So that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Look at it this way, though. The Indigenous population in China represents about 8.9% of China's total population, but in the Philippines, their indigenous peoples represent 15% of the population. Okay, so what about here in North America? Well, the United States has an indigenous population of 6.79 million people, which is 2.09% of the country's population. Any guesses who would be the largest group within that population? Well, I don't really know, but I would guess maybe the Navajo? Yes, Oh, Navajo. Okay. The Navajo are currently located in the southwestern states of Arizona and New Mexico. And the Navajo people, though, identify as Diné, which literally means the people. Interestingly enough, they were thought to have migrated originally from Western Canada. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to my next question there, Walker. What is the population of Indigenous peoples in Canada? The largest First Nations group in Canada are the Cree, who comprise a group of about 120,000 people. But overall, the population made up of the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples is reportedly a little over 1.8 million people, or about 5% of Canada's total population. Okay, that's a significant percentage. Mm -hmm. In Canada, there's a growing and very necessary awareness of significant struggles the Indigenous peoples have had to endure and, sadly, continue to endure. And frankly, these are shameful and horrifying, and many of which are unique to the colonization of this land. I wonder, though, are there any shared problems which the world's Indigenous population face? There are. According to Amnesty International, Indigenous peoples the world over suffer from marginalization, poverty, disease, and violence, and quite possibly even extinction. Mm. And the UN has outlined major issues which the Indigenous populations experience every day. As you would expect, some of which are violence and brutality, Mm -hmm. dispossession of land, forced removal or relocation, Mm -hmm. and denial of land rights. Right, exactly. And in Canada, this has all been recognized as the genocide Mm -hmm. of Indigenous peoples here. Even today, just access to clean drinking water remains an issue for Indigenous peoples living on reservations. Many can't even bathe in the water, let alone drink it. It causes rashes and other health issues. It's toxic and actually harmful to humans. It really is unbelievable. A Human Rights Watch report identified three points where Canada is currently violating the rights of Indigenous people. Okay, let's hear it. Discrimination against Indigenous people, Mm -hmm. violence suffered by Indigenous women, and also the inability to provide Indigenous peoples with adequate access to safe drinking water, which we just discussed. Yeah, Walker, I just can't understand how this 
continues to happen when we have the knowledge and education and wherewithal to rectify these issues. There's no excuse. Well, and it's not just in Canada either. No. According to Amnesty International, Indigenous peoples represent 15% of the world's extreme poor. The United Nations refers to Indigenous people as being, quote-unquote, among the most disadvantaged and vulnerable groups of people in the world. And it's not surprising that Indigenous people live on average 20 years less than a non-Indigenous person when you, you know, when you think about all of this. Yeah, no, it's so terrible, but not surprising. Again, according to the UN, Indigenous people are more likely to experience higher rates of maternal and infant mortality and malnutrition. They also experience higher rates of diseases such as cardiovascular illness, HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis. Well, their autonomy often has been completely ripped away from them, forcing them to live at the margins of society with their language, their culture, and their livelihoods Mm -hmm. threatened. So they're pushed to extreme disadvantage, and they're constantly under threat too from those seeking to extract natural resources Mm -hmm. from the land, from their land. Mm -hmm. And yet they have a beautiful strength and resilience. But now climate change has added another terrifyingly difficult challenge to the ability to live off the land for the world's indigenous peoples. The warming climate impacts ecosystems, species of plants and animals and sea life. They're all declining and becoming extinct even because they can't adapt quickly to the rising temperatures. And of course, this is disastrous for traditional food procurement, and it's really disastrous for all of us. Yeah, it's maddening. Mm -hmm. But it isn't just access to food, which is in jeopardy. Sacred land is at risk, the history, origin, and identity of Indigenous peoples. Yeah. Like the current horror playing out in Lahaina. The wildfires have destroyed and ravaged this area, killing people, but also decimating a site sacred to Indigenous Hawaiians. Yeah. It was the home of Kiawahani, a woman who transformed into a mo'o goddess and the residence of King Kamehameha, the Na'akaneo Maui Cultural Center, which has a massive archive, has been destroyed by the fires. It's just horrible. The Indigenous Hawaiians have been striving for decades to restore the site, which was covered with a parking lot and tennis court. Yeah, and just think of the disrespect of that, covering a sacred site with a parking lot and tennis court. It's just heartbreaking, but watching what's happening there in Lahaina, there's so much loss. The original cause of the fires still, I don't think, has been determined. But there's probably a few contributing factors. According to the Los Angeles Times, unusually dry weather conditions had been experienced by about 80% of the Hawaiian islands. But this weather pattern might be something that people will have to expect in the future. Well, it's important to note that while Indigenous people are deeply affected by climate change, they are the least likely to contribute to greenhouse gases. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that Mm -hmm. at all. Indigenous groups as a whole share a very strong connection with the land that they've lived on for generations. They respect and are mindful of the environment and all of those species who dwell within it. A terrible irony. It really is. And in fact, many Indigenous people live in a way that combats climate change as a matter of daily practice. They not only have a deep respect for nature, but they have a true understanding of the environment. Take, for example, the Indigenous Hawaiian fish pond system, which potentially could produce huge amounts of sustainable protein every year, but it also avoids other harms like coral bleaching and beach erosion. 
Yes, I've read about that. Mm -hmm. According to Survival International, an organization that fights for the survival of tribal peoples, Indigenous communities possess an understanding of animals as well as ecosystems, which they describe as unparalleled. Mm -hmm. Reportedly, Indigenous peoples care for 80% of global biodiversity. I never knew that is a huge percentage. That's insanity. And still they get disrespect. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. I believe that wholeheartedly. I just wish this was more widely understood. When peoples have lived on the land again, as I said, for generations, there must be a deep knowledge and synergy that occurs. We have so much to learn from Indigenous peoples. We certainly do. We are excited to introduce Joe Yuri, head guide and co-owner of the Métis-owned Jasper Tour Company in the Rocky Mountains. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. So uh, you'd say uh, out here, you'd say Pitagwe, which is welcome. Or uh, another word is Tawau. And Tawau is a really cool word because literally translated, it means welcome, but its greater meaning is there is room. And uh, I love that. Tawau. Yeah. yeah Tawau. There is room. And I want to say that to all Canadians. Oh, wow. Remember that. There is room. There always was. There always will be. I love it. Canadians and our American friends, too, probably as well. Right? True. True, true. Okay. So I want to jump right in here, Joe. Uh, You're known to have said that the Athabasca River, which is where you do a lot of your guiding and work, is the lifeblood in your veins. So what does this land in the Rocky Mountains mean to you? Well, um, I do say that a lot. And I guess going back to the introduction, um, in community, a lot of people, when they ask you who you are, they certainly want to know your name. But more importantly, they want to know who your people are. And if they know who Mm -hmm. your people are, then they have a greater understanding of who you are. And so when I say that the, the Athabasca is the lifeblood in my veins, I mean that because that's where my people have been for a long time. Since we came from Red River, which is the Red River Settlement, which is now basically Winnipeg, Manitoba, I call that the heartland of the homeland of the Métis Nation. But we've been on this river. I'm here at the birth of it in the Asiniwachia, the Rocky Mountains, um, which is the Columbia Icefields. My mom was born sort of, you know, a little more than halfway down at Fort McMurray. My grandmother was born at the very end of it at Fort Chip One. Uh, Well, she wasn't actually born in Fort Chip. She was born on a trap line in the bush in 1926. She just passed away in April at the ripe old age of 97. Um, Oh, my gosh. uh, and, And we've lived and we've worked along that river uh, for, for a great many years as guides. And so I'm still kind of doing the same thing now. With reference to the land, this land in the mountains, I came to be here 35 years ago this October. You know, I was in my early 20s at the time and not truly understanding all of that connection to the river and to this place, or at least the way that the river connected me to this place. But then it dawned on me one day um, and, and understanding this, that while I've lived here for a long time, these lands were traditional territory for other people. People who were unceremoniously and egregiously told to get the hell out um, when -hmm. it became a national park. And uh, these lands, you look at the mountains, there's grandfather, grandmother spirits in these mountains, in these waters, in this air. and, and, And on the land, those people who would have been the 
uh, the people who would translate the words that the, the landscape's trying to tell you, they're not here and they haven't been here for quite some time. And so it was some time ago that I suddenly realized that greater connection. And there's a story that goes with it, which is kind of lengthy. If you want to hear it, I can tell you. But um, I suddenly felt that perhaps while this isn't my traditional territory, this isn't where my family are from, that I came to the river and came to be at this place where there is a huge audience. We're talking about 2.8 million visitors a year so that I could tell tell the stories. This is a difficult thing because storytelling, certain stories belong to certain people and I can't tell those stories, but to just at least remind people to be a placeholder for those people and those voices that haven't been on the landscape for a long time here until such time that they can return. And I'm actually doing some work with some of those people right now, hoping to bring the, the voices and the people back to the landscape. So land is is everything and for everyone, everywhere, not just here, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question, because you do have quite a following for all the work and the guiding that you do, and you get spectacular reviews on TripAdvisor. And I've seen people describe you as like the perfect guide because you make that connection for people with the land and perhaps the spirits of the land. So what is it? that you're really trying to share with those guests on your tours? And what do you want them to walk away feeling or knowing? Well, you use the word connection. So I guess it's uh, more than connect. It's reconnecting. It's reconnecting. So everyone everywhere on this planet at one point in time had this kind of connection. Let's call it indigeneity, right? Everyone, let's be clear. Everyone has an indigenous background. It just so happens that with Canada, if we're talking about Canada specifically, a lot of those people are not indigenous to Canada. As a Métis person, I ha- I'm so invested in this conversation from both sides of the, of, of the conversation. One foot is firmly planted in the indigenous world and the other one is in that European world. That's the duality of being Métis, right? Um, some of those people that come to visit here, and I imagine, I mean, I, 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 Tecaranto, that's home, right? Um, yep. you've, you've probably spent a great many years on this much concrete, haven't you? How connected can you be to the landscape when you're walking around on, on concrete all the time? And this is the truth of, of probably the majority of the people on the planet these days. There's very few people who uh, remain connected to the land. So maybe it's what I'm trying to share or what I'm trying to do is help those people reconnect, if only for a moment here, given that they're not super familiar with this landscape, but I guess for lack of a better term, it's a moment where they could take their shoes and socks off and, and, and feel that land and feel that heartbeat, you know? And hopefully if you can make some kind of reconnection, this understanding that you do belong to the land and not the other way around, the land doesn't belong to you, that yeah. maybe when you go home, even if you live in downtown Toronto uh, or if you live in, in London, England, there are spaces in those cities where there's still wild things trying to make a living there. And it's not impossible to help those things achieve that again. Like I, I know there's good things going on in the Don Valley. Uh, what's yeah. that down down uh, uh, the brickworks there. What's that little valley? Yeah, the, it, it is the Don Valley. And the brickworks has been a he- amazing 
reclamation project? Yeah. I mean, you drop down into there. I, I used to do a lot of long distance running. And when I find myself in Toronto, I don't like running on the road. I don't like running. So I try to find those little spaces and you drop down into that little valley. And I remember probably one of the first times, and I hate to say this, but there was garbage and syringes and crap, you know, but then one day you drop in and whoa, what happened here? Like it's, and it's amazing. COVID showed us too how quickly mother nature can reclaim space. But it, yes. it, all of a sudden, wow, look at this beautiful space and look at the things that are interacting in that space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you come to a place like this and we try to, 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 to regain or to reconnect and, and hopefully you go home with that and you do yeah. your best to make that work. Like stop mowing your frigging lawn and let things grow. Oh my gosh, yes, please let it grow. Rewild, right? It's yeah. that whole rewilding movement. I love exactly. it. I love it. Exactly. So I follow you on Instagram and have for a really long time. And and in some ways, I feel like that can also connect me to the land and the species that are roaming on our land while I sit in the middle of a concrete jungle, right? It's like almost like voyeurism, but it's but you do feel a little bit of a connection there. It, it points you in the it points you in the right direction. And you have all of these moments, whether it's like recently you had a mama bear and her baby. And I think they were right outside your window feeding on a berry tree. You know, I mean, I don't get to see that outside of my window. Right. But you also recently posted about attending the Métis Youth Camp, the 2023 Métis Youth Camp. So I know you're very, you're very active. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, Tepemsuak Oskaya Kapishu, Métis Youth Camp. Yeah, uh, that's my second year going there. I, I, I've been invited the last few years to go uh, by the Métis Nations Youth Department to uh, just hang out with uh, with the youth uh, at the camp. And um, it's really, really awesome, actually. Um, that camp is held at a place called Camp Wahilo. It's in uh, uh, um, Cree Territory at Pigeon Lake. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm actually working with them in the hopes that next year we're going to do it here in Jasper. You know, the, the, the reality is with a lot of the things that I do as Jasper Tour Company, um, I'm dealing with older people who've got money and are traveling the world. Um, and I hate to say it, but and I'm, I'm in that category, that older person traveling the world. But um, I'm yesterday's news. So are you. Sorry to say it. Um, yeah, those kids, I hear it. Those kids, that's where it's at, right? And um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things that 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 plague this planet. And uh, again, I hate to say it, but a lot of those things have been my damn fault. Our generation, yes. and our parents' generation, and and uh, you know, there's this saying. I'm sure you've heard it. We did not inherit this from our ancestors. We're borrowing it from our children, and we're yeah. supposed to turn it back over to them in good standing. And I don't think we've done such a good job of it, but. This opportunity to to sit and and spend time with the youth, that's the opportunity to maybe, if I can't fix it myself, at least maybe I can help them gather up the tools to fix the mess that I made and apologize right. at the same time, right? And so yeah. I've been doing stuff like that. I work with the Native Friendship Center out of Hinton, which is the next town over outside of the park to the east, uh, to do... Um, Métis uh, teachings for um, kindergarten to grade three. Okay. Which is really, really crucial, um, especially like we have a lot of fun with stuff like that. And, you know, you put um, 
the good things into, into those minds. And 20 years from now, the conversation is completely different, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're the future. Yeah, right. And a lot of the things that come out of our mouths, I forgive a lot of people for so, a lot of the things. And I forgive a lot of people for, for things that have happened in Canada and Canadian history. A lot of the things that are coming to light because, um, you know, as much as, you know, the horrors of colonization were visited upon indigenous peoples, somebody had to convince the, the rest of the population that this was the right thing to do. And if I told you and I kept you sheltered and I told you every single day, if you were my kid, that that sky outside is beautiful color of pink. And then one day I unleashed you on the streets of Toronto. and It was a beautiful, clear sky day. And you went, what a beautiful pink sky today. Everyone would think you're crazy. But the reality is it's not your fault. I told you that. I lied to you this whole time. It's actually blue, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of people who maybe thought they were doing things that were the right things to do because they were convinced of that. And then there's other people who simply just didn't know, like when the children came to light at Kamloops in uh, a couple of years ago, it's am- it amazed me how many people were Canadians were just so I'm tears in their eyes. And you, so you could see their hearts that so shocked. Like we did what? Yeah. yeah. You know, we did what? And, and, yeah. and, it wasn't shocking to people in community. Everyone's always known in community that those people, those children were there, right? It's just nobody was empowered to do anything about it. So the opportunity to deal with youth and what I would actually love to see is to have the, maybe the Métis youth camp where the Métis children, they're all Métis kids at this camp, but maybe open it up, not just to Métis kids, but to other kids to have that same experience and this integrated experience where those kids can now learn in a fun environment, not sit down in a classroom and, and learn about the Métis yeah. Nation or, or, or any other culture, Indigenous culture for that matter. Of course, um, those different nations would be the ones to hold their own camp sort of thing. But invite other, other, other people's children into the mix. And, 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 and there you have these friendships growing which was the way it started. <laughs> and we just get back to where we um, stepped off the page a few hundred years ago, right? Exactly. And start that learning early, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's about bringing people up, like you were saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I'm, you know, it's an interesting thing happened here in Jasper National Park just a, a few short years ago. So th- this is Treaty 6 and Treaty 8 territory, uh, Region 3 of the Métis Nation, which is, uh, pardon me, Region 4. It's just about to change that we're going into these district things. Um, uh, to the west of us, British Columbia, and the divide is literally 32 kilometers from here, you have the Interior Salish people, the Shaquapmak people. And those people are not treaty people. They did not sign any agreements with Canada. So this is their traditional territory. They hunted here. They gathered here. They did ceremony here, all these different things. So there was an arrangement made between um, a particular band and Parks Canada, and they came into the park and they did a hunt. Um, I believe they took five elk, one mule deer, one bighorn. It was kept kind of top secret until basically like the day or so before it happened. Then parks announced it because they had to close off a particular area of the park, which isn't a very often visited area anyway, to ensure nobody's walking around in there and, you know, you know, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The outrage that suddenly came out um, and, 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 some of the people that I know who were outraged and I, and, and it was kind of baffling to me and I get 
initially where their thoughts process was coming from, but they were like, oh my goodness, you know, like if all the different indigenous people and there were, there's currently 20 different groups uh, uh, sitting at the table with parks who considered this traditional territory. If they all start coming in here and doing a hunt, we'll have no animals left. And I'm like, wow, do you hear what you're saying here? Here's the thing. I, I never once heard you talk about there. We're talking about seven animals. I, I never once heard, I never once heard you speak about the 200 plus that CN or the highway kills every single year. Exactly. But yeah. an indigenous group who have every right to do this come in to exercise a right. And, and, and that's all they were doing. They exercise a right and they brought youth in to teach them their ways. Mm-hmm. I now, if, if it were me, and I say this in conjunction with what I had just spoken about with the youth camp, it would have been great if they would have taken along some of the young kids from Jasper to experience yeah. this with their children so they could see. Because yeah. this is part, part of the thing about uh, this, this divide is simple ignorance, right? When people are aff- ignorant, they're afraid. Uh, 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 and if they just come to know one another, and understand a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Most of that stuff. The fear is under. gone. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right? So. So Joe, I want to circle back to storytelling again. We talked about it earlier. It's my understanding that storytelling is a critical pathway for the sharing of culture and tradition in Indigenous culture. Yeah. I'm just wondering if there's a story that you could share with us that you think we should all hear. There are. There's millions, there's millions and millions, and, and there are millions and millions that are lost to, uh, to, to history because people were made to, um, to shut their mouths and not tell their stories and not speak their languages. And unfortunately, that is the truth. Um, some of the languages are lost, um, yeah. you know, and, and language is key, is probably the biggest key to culture. You know, let's say from your guys' perspective, um, being in uh, Tecoranto, in Ontario, um, there's a guy, Bum Gizig. Uh, Isaac Murdoch is his colonial name. I don't know if he, I think he'd much rather prefer you to call him Bum Gizig. Bum Gizig of the Great Lakes. Look him up on um, social, Isaac Murdoch. Amazing storyteller. And he would tell stories that are really relevant to um, places and spaces on, on, on your landscape. Uh, rather than tell you a story, what I think I would do is, no, I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm going to tell you a story at the end of this, because I think it's a, good, <laughs> it's a good way to end. But what I will do in this moment, though, is point you in direction. So I'm a founding director for Indigenous Tourism Alberta. Um, we have a national umbrella, which is um, the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. And then underneath, you have these provincial bodies. There is Indigenous Tourism Ontario, though, and I will say this um, very briefly, Indigenous Tourism Ontario and uh, ITAC, the national body, are scrapping. And I don't quite understand the conversation, nor do I agree with it. I, um, I don't give a crap if you have differences here and there. Um, have those conversations in that room. In the meantime, um, what we're trying to do is to tell stories. And um, the best way for you to hear those stories and the best way to learn is through these tourism experiences that are now being offered look up indigenous tourism ontario or look up indigenous uh, destination indigenous which is the national body indigenous tourism alberta and you'll find experiences experiences like mine but some of them are far more cultural um some of them you know are 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 really really 
full-on authentic experiences that you're going to just learn and sit around a campfire with an elder and hear these stories in the places where they should be told at the time that they should be told and by whom they should be told, not by me, right? Unless, of course, it's my story to tell. And, and that's the best place to find these people who will tell you those stories and, and, and very specific to the territories or the different regions of Canada. So in terms of the land, Indigenous stewardship of the land is critically important, particularly at this time with climate change. Just curious, how do you see the way forward to supporting the health and welfare of our beautiful country and the lives that thrive on it? Hold on one second. Sure, of course. Can you you see that? (laughs) Oh, yes, I see it. (laughs) You know? You know what it is? For, for buffalo listeners, it is a big, beautiful, technicolor buffalo. I think this uh, uh, climate change thing, I, I, you know what? There's a lot of argument about climate change. We'll stop arguing because we're not scientists. None of us are, except for those who actually studied the thing. Stop arguing. Stop with this misinformation and just do good things be a steward that regardless of whether you believe the planet is heating up or not because of human activity and and let's be clear the planet has been warming up since the end of the last ice age and it will be freezing cold again one day that's not the argument the argument is whether or not we've spiked mother nature's temperature i'm not arguing with people anymore you want to know where i live come to jasper and look Drive down the main street and find the only house that's rooftop is covered in solar panels. Okay. Like I am going to do what I can do as a good steward of this land. So at least my grandkids will say, "Mm, well, at least he tried, you know, um, if the rest of us can't get on the same page and it's irrelevant of whether or not you think that you're part of the problem, your job is stewardship, right? We, Mm -hmm. we, um, we have a word in our language, Michif, which is a, um, taken from the Cree languages, and the word is Wakotuin. Okay. Wakotuin literally translated means kinship, but what it speaks to is the principle of this kind of stewardship. It's your place on the land, your role. You look out the, uh, the out your window and you see grass growing through the crack in the sidewalk. Are you more important than that grass? No, you're not. Are you less important than that grass? No, you're not. You all have a specific role. And it just so happens that the human beings are stewards of these things. And it goes back to this, you know, uh, we didn't inherit this from our ancestors. We're meant to give it back to our kids in good standing. So this is what it's all about. Now, two key things to making at least this continent, which we're uh, uh, our feet are on. The two single most important things to this landscape that we now call North America, Turtle Island, the two single most important. uh, And it just so happens that my nation, the Métis Nation, was born of the first one, Amisk, the beaver. Mm. Or at least we were born of Europe's quest for it. And we came to our adulthood around Pascua Moshtos, the buffalo. Okay. You know what a keystone is? Yes, I do. Okay, so if we have the midi, midi. <laughs> at the top, that keeps two sides together and the pressure builds it together. So what happens when you take the keystone out? Everything falls apart. Right. There were roughly 400 million beaver 
on this continent when Europe arrived and upwards, depending on who you read, of 60 million buffalo. European cultures basically removed both of those. Uh, you know, Canada's on fire at the moment and it has been since May. Two things would have stopped those fires, three things, buffalo being in part of that. But number one, you, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but Canada houses over 20% of the entire world's fresh water within our boundaries. Do you know what 400 million beaver would have done to that water? They would have moved it to such places that it would be impossible for this country to burn like it is burning right now. Uh, that Between that and the mismanagement of, of forests and not allowing fires to burn, which they should have burned. So much of the landscape that's on fire right now has been longing to burn for a long time. Fire is Mother Nature's way of weeding the garden and reseeding the garden. And it's not been allowed to happen. You uh, And currently there's roughly 20 million beavers. So the beaver are resurgent. Um, but you get beaver onto those landscapes and I know it's going to piss off some farmers, but there's other things you can do uh, uh, rather than kill the beaver to allow the beaver to do their thing while you do your thing. The other thing, and this is key, is to return the buffalo to the landscape. There's 186 equal regions on this continent. The buffalo was found in 46 and its presence was felt in all of them that domino effect. Um, so check out the Buffalo Treaty. It was originally signed in 2014 at Fort Belknap Reservation in Montana. It was, the, to the best of my understanding, the brainchild of an elder from Guyana, a Blackfoot uh, fellow by the name of Leroy Little Bear. Uh, he is the epitome of two-eyed seeing. He's a professor uh, in both the uh, Euro world at the University of Leth uh, Lethbridge, and I think he was an adjunct professor at Harvard, and he is also a knowledge keeper in the Blackfoot Nations. This is really important to put the buffalo back culturally to so many people on the plains. You have to imagine the buffalo was absolutely everything. It was your home. It was your food. It was your tools. It was absolutely everything to you. So it's very important to bring heart and soul back to cultures but ecologically it's extremely important to every last human being who calls north america home and around the world eventually you know all these ecosystems these little eco regions are all part of that greater complex system all interconnected right and so i mean with the buffalo treaty the first places that were um you know where this kind of thing to to return the buffalo to the landscape is a difficult maneuver because of fences um but um a lot of reservations there's a lot of wide open space and national parks i'm not sure if you're aware of it but parks canada was also a signatory and to, uh, as to their commitment to it they returned the buffalo to banff national park in 2017 okay. 16 of them and they're hidden in the back country in a place called the panther valley but from the 16 in 2017 there are now over 100 buffalo in that park so in terms of the, the health of the climate and, the, and, and, and these biospheres that support us, I can't think of anything better to do than help the buffalo back, welcome the buffalo to wow. You know, there is room. Put that buffalo back on the landscape and, and beaver. So, Joe, before we say goodbye today, is there any last words you have for us or a story? Yes. Okay. You wanted a story. I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. I, I call this story the beautiful idea. Okay. It's a story of Canada. Uh, it could be a story of America. could be a story of Australia. 
could be a story of uh, African nations. Any, it, it's a colonization thing, I guess, right? This is one of my sashes, Métis sashes. It's one of the certainly the most prominent markers of Métis culture. Um, this it is beautiful, and this one's known as the Dark Times sash. A lot of Métis people, um, you know, um, the Scottish influence on our culture, uh, you know, tartan, I, I might not know who you are, but I recognize the tartan. Therefore I know who your people are. Right. Uh, and therefore I know who you are. Yeah. Um, that could be said of Métis people with the sash patterns. We had sash patterns for our families. Unfortunately, many, many Métis people don't remember their patterns because we were made to forget. Mm -hmm. So this one is called the dark times pattern. Generally you wouldn't put black into your pattern, but this came after the um, Red River resistance and the Northwest resistance. Of course, uh, most Canadians know that history with Lou Real and so on and so forth. Anyway, this is my story. It's called The Beautiful Idea. Now, um, I liken all human beings to water, right? And I think if you go from a scientific perspective, what are we? 90% water? All, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, so, so the analogy works. If, uh, if you're water, which you are, where are you going? This is the truth of all water. Every last drop. Where is all water going? To the sea. Let's go from a scientific or a graphic precipitation where the water is drawn up off the sea and it's inland. Uh, the cold air drops it on the landscape. It absorbs. But eventually all those drops end up in some form of river or not. And they head back to the sea where that big circle of life starts all over again. Right. So we're all water. Uh, and we're all heading to the sea. Um, each one of us as an individual, a little drop of water left as an individual drop of water, you're not long for this place. So what water tends to do is it tends to find the path of least resistance heading downstream, downhill, and it starts to move that way where it might encounter another drop of water. And it joins with that drop of water and yet another drop of water. And uh, if you're water, you become a stream. If you're human beings, you've become a culture. And uh, you start traveling together, right? So here's this beautiful idea they called, they came to call Canada. And you can see this river of life and it's flowing to the sea and everybody's flowing together, right? And there we are. You can see all the different cultures that have come to call Canada home. And notice how they're not really interfering with one another. Yeah. But listen, if you ask me to help you paddle your canoe, I'm going to help you paddle your canoe. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. That's your canoe, right? But by this way, we will all eventually make the sea together. And, you know, if you want to call the sea heaven, you know, if you want to say God, Allah, creator, it doesn't matter to me. It's all the same thing that was described to your people culturally at a time and in a place that made absolute sense to you. But it's the same thing. And by the way, creator, if I were to ever have an assigned an ag uh, agenda, it certainly wouldn't have been he because he wrecks shit and she creates, she gives birth. So I love that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so here is this beautiful idea of Canada where all the cultures are traveling together to the sea. But why is this just an idea? Because it never included the waters of the people who were here first. All those waters were dammed up over here. We like to call them reservations. But you know what? Those dams were poorly constructed. They're built on mud. 
the mud is the foundation of Canada, which is a lot of lying, a lot of bullshit. Um, and those dams are breaking partly because of the poor construct, partly because the people behind them are demanding out and partly because there's people like you who are helping break them down from the other side. But what is going to happen is those dams are going to break and their waters are going to come into that river of life where they should have always been in the first place. And they were the excellent guides who would have shown us the proper way to the sea. And once they're in there, then this idea of Canada is not an idea anymore. It can be what we told everybody around the world that it was. And a lot of people around the world are coming to know Canada's dirty secrets and realize that we aren't the people that we said we were. And I do say we, because the Métis people are the first Canadians. We are the true Canadians. We were born of this place of those two very different cultures, the European cultures and the indigenous cultures. And it is it's that important to me to, to, to make this work, to make Canada work, right? So there's my story. It's the beautiful idea. And it's people like you and me, we, who are going to make uh, the idea the reality that we told the world it was. I want to thank you. It's been a real privilege to speak with you today. It's been an education and, and an absolute pleasure. And I hope at some point in the future, we can chat again. Yeah, that would be great. But you know what? Better than talking to me, go start seeking out some of those other people, people in your territory, people across coast to coast to coast, because again, then you're going to get uh, deeper dives, people, and, and you know, people who are, who have lived fully immersed in their culture. It's not the truth of every last uh, native person in Canada that they've been removed from it. There are those people who are so deeply connected, way more than I am. Uh, and there are people that we can, we can all learn from, me included. Absolutely. Heather, uh, you and I definitely need to take a road trip to meet some of these people who Joe has mentioned in our podcast today. And further the conversation. Oh, for sure. Um, for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Joe and the Jasper Tour Company, you can find them at www.jaspertourcompany.com or on Instagram at, at Jasper Tour Company. Oh, I, I just want to throw a shout out jaspertourcompany.com. It says there that it is a Métis owned experience. Let's be clear on something. There is that duality of Métis. And uh, the, so I, I liken this to our, my company. Um, there's this other part and her name is Patty and she's actually the boss. <laughs> <laughs> You're of a smart man, Joe. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody does this alone. Oh, so true. A big shout out to Patty. This has been so much fun and a real education and just the start of our conversation and our allyship. That was an incredibly poignant and meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. So many Indigenous peoples, their traditions, their cultures, their existence are under threat today. Yeah. It's estimated that every two weeks, Harris, one Indigenous language dies. Every two weeks? Mm -hmm. Oh, my Apparently gosh. Apparently so. That's crazy. The last person who could speak the language of the Orochi people who live on the shores of the Sea of Japan died over a decade ago. And you think how much knowledge was lost as Gone. well with the Gone. death of that language is tragic. Beyond language and culture, though, their very lives are threatened. Yeah. Indigenous women have a one in three chance of being sexually assaulted. Uh, this is such a grim, grim truth. 
and they have a higher rate of maternal mortality, teen pregnancy, and also sexually transmitted diseases. The abuse, suffering, and often murder, Mm -hmm. uh, let's be frank, of Indigenous women is often disregarded or just flat out ignored. Take, for example, the recent decision that the government of Manitoba here in Canada just took. It's believed that the remains of two missing and they think murdered women of the Long Plains First Nation are in this particular landfill, the Prairie Green landfill. Finding their remains would probably bring some solace to their grieving families, but the government is refusing to search the landfill for them. Why on earth are they refusing? If that was my daughter or your daughter, God forbid, I would want her found. Absolutely. These women are believed to be the victims of a known serial killer who's currently serving time for four other murders. So are these women just further victims of the systemic racism against Indigenous people? Many think so. And that's just one example. Yeah. Take, for example, the Yanomami who live on the border between Venezuela and Brazil. Mm -hmm. They're a group of about 35,000 people. Okay. And they've been suffering desperately at the hands of non-Indigenous people. Their traditional land has been continually under assault and threat from gold mining operations since it was discovered there roughly 50 years ago. Right. And when you consider that their traditional lands are largely Amazonian rainforest, the Yanomami are protectors of one of the largest carbon sinks in the world. Did you know that there are actually 70 million Indigenous people who depend on forests for their livelihoods? Mm -hmm. And that the forests on Indigenous lands store at least one quarter of all above ground tropical forest carbon. Isn't that crazy? That's roughly four times the total amount of global carbon emissions produced in 2014. Wow. Yeah. It is small wonder then that the governments involved were pressured by anthropologists, environmentalists, and other international groups to establish land boundaries. Sadly, the parcels of land attributed to the Indigenous people were much smaller than the era that they had lived on previously, and from what I hear, didn't take into account their trading networks. Mm -hmm. And these lands still suffer trespassers. Since the discovery of gold, these trespassers have gifted the Indigenous people things like malaria, the flu, alcohol addiction, Mm -hmm. mercury poisoning as a result of mining, and violence at the hands of the miners themselves. In the 1980s, I don't know if you knew this, but 40,000 miners invaded the area. 30% of the indigenous group died in seven years. Oh my gosh. And most shockingly, in 1993, the Yanomami were massacred in Brazil. 16 Yanomami were killed, including an infant, by five miners. Two served jail time, the other three apparently escaped. I think I remember that. The Yanomami of Brazil have created their own organization called the Hutukara, to unite and represent Yanomami rights, their culture and their lands in the Amazon. And the Yanomami of Venezuela have created their own organization as well called Horonami. As David Kopanawa, a representative for the Hutukara says, our land is all we know, but really it is critically important for all of our survival. There are many organizations worldwide who work to bring awareness to the issues facing Indigenous peoples, but it is a really hard-won battle. The drive to exploit the Earth's natural resources is a worldwide force that's really difficult to fend off. You see it everywhere. It's not just the biodiversity and beauty of the natural environment, though, that we should all act to protect. It's also the Indigenous cultures, which are so rich and so beautiful, Indigenous artists, musicians, writers, and activists around the world educate and bring awareness and share their rich cultural heritage. 
Take, for example, Aretha Brown. Now, she is one phenomenal human being, and her Wikipedia bio describes her as an Indigenous Australian youth activist, comedian, artist, and the former Prime Minister of the National Indigenous Youth Parliament. Well, that's impressive. Yeah, especially when (laughs) she's only 22 years old. I know, her art is gorgeous, too. And she's a member of the Gumbanger Nation living in Melbourne, Australia. She was the first female and youngest Prime Minister for the National Indigenous Youth Parliament, and at 16, fought to make Indigenous history education mainstream. Wow. And as an artist, she's known for her bold, eye-catching murals, which have kind of like a pop art feel. And they're often, but not always, in black and white. In an interview with the National Indigenous Times, she said... Aboriginal people don't have our history written down in the traditional Western sense. Like everything that we have about our culture is either in our visual art or like orally passed down through storytelling. So being an artist and an Aboriginal person is really important because this is how we communicate stories that have been passed down. It's so important to keep these traditions alive. Absolutely. And then there's Sheena Novalinga too. She is an impressive Inuk social media content creator, activist, and throat singer. Originally from Puvernatuk, Nunavik. And she's now living in Montreal. Her music is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I heard traditional throat singers. It's quite calming, isn't it? It really is. Her singing with her mother is particularly beautiful and garnered her massive popularity on TikTok and Instagram. I'll put her Instagram handle in the show notes for anyone who is interested. Yeah, well, Sheena's also really adept at harnessing the power of social media to mm-hmm. share her culture, including fashion and foods. And the issues which Indigenous people face, including domestic violence in Indigenous communities. Now, did you know that throat singing had been banned by Christian missionaries and residential schools in the early 20th century, and it was banned until the 1980s? Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Apparently it was perceived as being backwards and even satanic. Oh, for God's sake, Walker. Mm -hmm. Honestly. Now, have you heard of Twin Flames, a Canadian folk group? No, I can't say I have. Well, they're an award-winning Indigenous indie folk group, and it's a husband and wife gig, too, which is really kind of mm-hmm. special. Their debut album was released in 2015, and they've won so many awards, 41 in seven years. Holy cow. That's a success. Yeah, I think you'd really enjoy their sound. They combine Indigenous spirit flutes and some traditional drums and even some Inuit throat singing. That sounds absolutely amazing. Now, if you had asked me which one is my favorite song, I don't think I could just pick one. Um, There's a few that I like in particular. One is Who I Am, another Grace 2, and Omen and Giants. Oh, oh, and Porchlight. These are some of my favorites. Well, you're a big fan there, Walker. Mm-hmm. I am. Definitely worth listening to their music. You won't be disappointed. Okay. But if you're a little bit more into hip hop, mm-hmm. I would recommend you check out Punahele, who is Paul Punahele Kutsen from Makaha on the west coast of Oahu, Hawaii, who received an award for Hip Hop Album of the Year in 2019. Neat. But he's not only a hip hop artist. He's also an educator and activist as well. He teaches music as a way of storytelling to young disenfranchised Hawaiians because he himself grew up in the slums of Makaha. Well, teaching skills to the next generation, so important. Yeah, very important. And he also protested the TMT. That's the Uh, 30-meter telescope, which is being proposed to be built on top of the sacred mountain, Mauna Kea. It's huge. Nice, eh? It's huge. He has said that 
My music is used as a tool to stand against anything that is harmful to Aina, the land, water, or the planet. As a native Hawaiian from Makaha, I also want my music to heal and uplift my culture and community. Isn't that beautiful? It is. But if hip-hop isn't your thing, I would recommend you check out Terry Uyurok. Oh, I love his sound. Yeah, I know, right? For our listeners who haven't heard of Terry Uyurok, he is an Anuk singer-songwriter and musician from Iglulik, Nunavut, a place I have never been. Oh, shocking, Walker. <laughs> but maybe not yet. His debut album was released in 2020. So how would you describe it? Well, it's a little bit more traditional, mm-hmm. perhaps with a really beautiful emphasis, again, on storytelling. It's actually been described as storytelling woven with soundscape and song, where the listener is taken on a journey by a dog team to the ends of the world. Doesn't that sound so beautiful? Sounds like the Odyssey. Yeah, it does, actually. (laughs) Really enticing. Terry has said that the Inuit went through so much change with our parents and our grandparents, especially with being completely nomadic to our lifestyle now. If I could send a message to people, it would be that we go back a bit to our roots and tell each other that we can overcome any situation. What a hopeful message and wise too. Mm-hmm, definitely. As Take Note said, listening to and supporting music by Indigenous musicians won't undo history, but it will allow you to better understand the concerns of Native people through their music and lyrics. Well, I completely agree with that. Take the time and explore some of the fascinating art and music being created by Indigenous artists worldwide. You won't be disappointed. Nope. But the Indigenous people who are changing the world aren't limited to artists and musicians. No, definitely not. One very, very impressive woman is Tylee Torina, an Indigenous rights and climate change activist from Torina Nation in Brazil. Mm-hmm. She's very concerned with global warming and how it's affecting the rainforest, as well as the rights of Indigenous women in Brazil. And Tylee is also a member of Enlace Continental de Mujeres Indigenas, Continental Network of Indigenous Women of Americas. She has said, I am a fierce woman because I have been taught by my mother and grandmothers on how to use our feminine power in balance with the cycles of Mother Nature, on how to use our unique strength to face the challenges that these times present to people and the world. Wow, she is a force. A force. And then there's Yushel Rodriguez, too, who is also an inspiration. She is of the Rizal Afro-Caribbean native group of the archipelago of San Andres, Providencia, and Santa Catalina Islands in Colombia. She's an environmental engineer, researcher, and climate activist who has fought to protect the island's coral reef. Mm -hmm. And I read that at 22 years old, which must be a magic age, (laughs) I don't know, these kids, they're doing amazing things. She was one of 25 plaintiffs who were successful at suing the Colombian government for not complying with a target to stop deforestation in the Colombian Amazon. Can you imagine? No, it's amazing. When we feel like we can't make change, we can just think of these women. Mm -hmm. So impressive. Mm -hmm. Role models, true role models. Of course, there are inspiring Indigenous people in all walks of life, though. But I do want to mention Arcana Sarang. She's a member of the Karia tribe in Odisha, India, and is a climate and gender activist. She represents one of the seven members of the United Nations Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change, and she has said that one of the most important things that I would like to see is a lot more countries committing to recognizing the rights of Indigenous people over their land, Mm. their forests, their territories, recognizing the value of their traditional knowledge and practices, of their worldview. Well, I agree with her wholeheartedly. I know. I don't think it could be said better. And then there is Gift Parsin, 
an indigenous Maasai youth from the Maasai Mara National Reserve in Kenya who is actively involved in supporting human rights. This area suffers food insecurity due to droughts and floods as a result of climate change. And according to Global Citizen, food insecurity has resulted in child brides being exchanged for cattle. Girls as young as 12, Walker. Not a consequence of climate change that many would think of, right? And a terrible one at that. Terrible. GIFT is a member of the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus, which encourages the world's Indigenous youth to take part in the decision-making processes which affect them and promote greater awareness about issues on all levels. He's also a youth volunteer for Maasai Women for Education and Economic Development, MAWID, and is a member of the Coalition of Human Rights Defenders of Kenya, or the HRDK. Right. According to GIFT who I think really, truly is very, very well named. Mm -hmm. The indigenous youth are the custodians of Mother Earth. Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. And Walker, I would be remiss if I didn't celebrate the remarkable Autumn Peltier, an Anishinaabe indigenous rights advocate on Manitoulin Island, Ontario, Canada. Her life as an activist began at age eight when she fought for the rights to have access to clean drinking water in all indigenous reserves and in the developing world after she discovered that the drinking water in a nearby indigenous community had been contaminated by pipeline chemicals and pollution. Autumn was appointed chief water commissioner by the Anishinaabek nation in 2019. She's also been nominated for the International Children's Peace Prize several times and has been featured in the 2019 documentary, The Water Walker. I need to see that. Yeah. Autumn has been quoted as saying, I believe that no matter what race or color or how rich or poor we are, Everybody deserves clean drinking water. You don't have to be indigenous to respect water or raise awareness for it. She has also said, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 70. I hope she doesn't have to. Right? But it is really in all of our hands, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We must all harness our own influence to support positive change for the indigenous peoples of this beautiful planet. Yep. I thought that these three items from National Today might serve as a starting point for our listeners. Okay. So take the time to learn more about indigenous people around the world by reading a book about indigenous culture and history. Yeah. You're reading one right now, aren't you, Harris? Yeah, a really exceptional one. It's called um, Truth Telling by Michelle Good. Okay. Yeah. You can also learn an indigenous language. Mm -hmm. You won't just be learning vocabulary and grammar, but you'll have an insight into culture too. Yeah, there's all kinds of programs and even on Duolingo, they have some indigenous language learning. Good to know. But finally, and most importantly, you can protect indigenous rights by allowing indigenous people the right to determine how to live their lives on their land with their traditions and beliefs. Mm -hmm. In the words of Native American writer Louise Erdrich, Things which do not grow and change are dead things. At at home and abroad, we choose to grow. Got that right. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harris and Walker. We would love to hear from you.